up 2017. Pretty cool. All right. We have just come through a long season in which gift giving is an important reality. And I think that there is a way that we can get to know each other a little bit when we give uh, and receive gifts. And so I think of growing up when we would get together, uh, usually in Monroe, Wisconsin, my Aunt Diane was notoriously honest when receiving a gift. And if you would give her a gift that she didn't perceive to be something she liked or useful, she would just tell you, well, I love it. I'll never wear that sweater, though. Thank you. (laughs) And you would say, that's kind of abrasive, um, but it is nice to know that that is not something you would use. She received the gift, honestly, and in a way that made it clear to everybody else whether it was useful or not. This is about 180% different uh, than my wife, Allie, who this year received the gift that I gave her, and she was excited about it. Wireless headphones. I thought it was genius. She'll be able to walk around and do her thing without wires hanging in her way, jogging, you know, whatever. Oh, thank you. This is wonderful. It's still sitting under our lamp unopened, even this morning as I come. Now, she has received that gift in a very different way. I would say if the Bible was going to tell my wife how she received... I can say this because she's downstairs serving our kids this morning. So, (laughs) The Bible would say, Ellie, you received that gift in vain. Whoa, that's pretty intense. What it means is you've received the gift in a way that has had no meaningful effect on your life, okay? Now, I want to talk about this. I'm setting this up for our, our, our talk today because we're going to go into the book of Philemon, and there we'll see a letter from Paul to a slave owner. And the question is, how does the gift of the gospel and life in Christ have a meaningful effect? Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Paul is the one who writes this letter to Philemon. I think of in Galatians, in the book that he, or the letter he writes to the Galatian church, they have navigated some pretty tumultuous water, some pain. And he's commenting to them and he says, you know, I hope that all the stuff you've walked through hasn't been in vain. Have you been suffering for Jesus in a way that actually has had no meaningful effect in your life? He uses that language of being in vain. Even clearer, he writes to the Corinthian church two different letters, and in his second letter toward the end in chapter 15, he makes this statement which is pretty, uh, pretty intense. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. He's referring back to the gospel that he's preached to them. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, he says, you have believed in vain. Meaning, otherwise you have believed in a way that has had no meaningful effect on your life. You can believe that God exists. This is most of my life. To really come in to bend my knee to Jesus as the true king. I believed in God. I believed that Jesus was God, that he died and rose for my sins. I believed all that stuff had no meaningful effect on my life whatsoever. I think Paul would say to me, Ben, you believed in vain. It's funny to think, isn't it? You could believe that much and yet have it not change you. We see a picture of that, I think, in Judas. For those of you who've walked through the Gospel of Mark with us for over a year, We paid a little bit of attention to Judas, especially at the end. He believed in Jesus. He followed Jesus. And yet, he never did so in a way that changed his own heart. Judas was pursuing himself all the way from the beginning to the end, which for him is the end on a noose that he himself tied. Peter, on the other hand, through the story of Jesus, seems to be receiving the truth of Jesus in a way that is having a meaningful effect on him albeit not rapidly, <laughs> we, we kind of see this frustration in Jesus through the whole story where he's asking him, do you still not understand? Are you still not paying attention to me? But, but Peter is growing and changing and he's being transformed. So there's very different ways that people receive the gospel. That's why, well, it's not the only reason why, 
but it's one of the reasons I love the Bible. We have this question we ask each other a lot, or ourselves, what would it look like if, and then you fill in the blank, what would it look like if, this, what would it look like if my wife actually liked her wireless iPod? or uh, earphones, you know, they wouldn't be still unopened under the lamp right now. What would it look like? The New Testament will give us a picture of what it looks like for a vision of a new world in Christ beginning to form. So when you read the New Testament, you're looking at, you're seeing a picture of what it looks like for the real gospel, the good news of God, to begin having a meaningful effect on human beings and their communities. That's basically the entire book of Acts, and we're going to be, that's where we'll launch next week, into a series in the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke. It's an amazing book, and it'll be a picture of what's happening when the kingdom is taking root in the world. Same thing, I think, is true in Philemon, and I want to do the whole book of Philemon today. And you guys who have sat with me preaching, you're like, oh my goodness, are we staying for dinner? You know, it took us 15 months to do the Gospel of Mark. We'll do all of Philemon in one day. But it's only 25 verses, so we're all right. We're going to talk about a Christian slave owner named Philemon. We're going to talk about a Christian slave named Onesimus. How does the gospel have a meaningful effect on a Christian slave owner and a Christian slave who has committed the crime of thieving by running away? It's a big question. How does the gospel register in that world? We need some help from Jesus, so I want to pray with you before we continue, and then we'll jump in. Father, our world is very different than the first century world that we're, we're reading from when we read these New Testament letters. And yet we're reminded by the wisdom of the scriptures at large that would tell us uh, it may look very different, but at the deep core, uh, much is still the same. I pray that through your spirit, you would help us to see uh, Paul's pastoral heart uh, the conflict that Philemon and Onesimus feel as the reality of Jesus confronts the reality of their lives. And I pray that through your spirit, you would help us as a community to draw connections from then to now so we can learn what it is that you want us to learn from this amazing letter. Thank you for being with us this whole year. We trust you'll be with us through the next. Amen. Who is Philemon? All right, you can have your finger there, but I want to do two movements before we get there. First, I want to ask, who is Philemon? He's a house church leader in Colossae, okay? So he is, he is leading a smaller church in a house in the town of Colossae. We will see from verse 19 as we read through the book uh, that he is a convert of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Paul has shared the gospel with him. Philemon has believed and joined Paul's ministry. Paul will say to him, you owe me your very self. Meaning, I gave you a great gift, and in their culture, gift giving was reciprocal. And so I gave this to you, Philemon. You owe me. You give me back your very life. Paul will call him a co-worker a co-laborer in the gospel, which puts him, Philemon, in a very distinguished class of the people that Paul is teaching and preaching and ministering with. Most important thing about Philemon in this letter, which we have already said, is that he is a slave owner. So, we need to know what slave owners could do and did do in their world uh, as a f kind of a fundamental starting point for this book. It's very difficult to feel the weight of this book if you don't know about the laws of slaving and the culture back then. So that's where I want to start. I want to start, actually I want to do three things here. The first thing I want to do is look at Paul's vision for households and house churches related to slavery. Then I want to look at the culture 
what was going on in that first century day, and then we're going to read the whole letter together, okay? So the first thing would be Paul's vision for a Christian household and the regulations there. Their households are very different than ours today. And so Paul, in various texts, will give us cues as to how he envisions a community like a household or a house church to live in accordance with the gospel. You see one of the most famous ones in Galatians 3.28. Under the weight or the truth of the gospel, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. And he'll go on by eradicating distinctions that we've drawn out. He says the gospel brings us into a different kind of field. We no longer have a scenario under the grace of God where you have a valuable free person and a less valuable slave person. That would be the culture in the day. He says that, that wall, that division, or that hierarchy gets, gets eradicated in Jesus. In Colossians 3.11, he says, similarly, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But in Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all, meaning these divisions we've formed get dissolved in the gospel. This is a radical vision. You and I see it and we say, well, yeah, we abolished slavery quite a while ago. Good thing. This must have been the beginning of that. But it really wasn't. What Paul's talking about is mind-bending in his world. So he has this wild idea, this beautiful vision for a new kind of world in Christ. A new way of understanding one another. Where categories like Jew and Gentile, slave and free aren't valid. But any idealized vision, so he has this vision. Boy, this is going to be awesome. And you're listening to it and you say, a world without slaves and free as a social distinction. What in the world? It begs that question that we already asked. Okay, what does that actually look like for real? What does it mean when you have a Christian slave owner and a Christian slave in this kind of world that Paul's talking about where there's no longer slave or free? <laughs> are, they, are they still slave and slave owner or not? That's the question that we're asking. So writing to the church in Colossae, that's where Philemon lives, Paul reveals his heart for slaves and their good treatment. We'll see it. The critical statement in Colossians 4.1, this is another letter from Paul, is, is something that's also probably familiar to us. He says this in Colossians 4. To the slave owner, he says, Masters, you guys who own slaves, I want you to treat your slave with justice and with equality. Okay, so on one hand, the gospel breaks down anything that makes us think hierarchically. This person's more valuable or less. Then Paul gets even more specific for how a household is supposed to run. Paul knows that most households will have slaves in the ancient Roman world. And so he gives them instructions on how to treat their slaves. I want you to treat them well. I want you to treat them with justice and equality. There, Paul tips his hand a little bit. He doesn't see the simple fact of owning a slave as unjust. Oh, we say, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. This is where we start to feel and learn more of what the Bible is. Paul doesn't condemn slavery. He says, here's how to do it well. It's very interesting, isn't it? And what's his key? Equality. Isotes. That's a really good word in the Greek. Equality. What is it getting at? Mutual, reciprocal benevolence. This sense of I give to you you give back. I might be very wealthy. I give to you when you're not. And the idea is that as you get your feet under you and established and you become wealthy, as I grow old, you'll give back. It's a reciprocating, relational sort of cycle of benevolence within a community. Masters treat your slaves that way. We say, well, how could a slave benefit the master? Well, Seneca, he was a writer early in that same era, he talks about slaves being able to benefit their masters. 
to give to them good labor, good work, a good attitude, etc. And he wants masters to give back to their slaves in the same kind of way, to be beneficial to them, to not beat them, etc., etc. Seneca, I think, is very much in the same mindset as Paul. So you see this, it's challenging, isn't it? The truth of Jesus, Paul sees it, if we're all coming to the same table for communion, if we're all under God's grace, that means we're equal. We can't keep treating each other this way, but how do we do it? And here's, okay, masters, I want you to treat your slaves this way. Slaves, be good to your masters as well. This is a picture of the earliest believers trying to figure out how to live the gospel reality in their context and in their world. He's basically talking about a kind of relationship when he's talking about equality. A kind of relationship that can form and that should form when you actually care for one another as God's beloved children. I challenge our community with this often. Do we see each other as miracles? Do we look at each other as God's beloved children, every single one of us? Or do we see one another as obstacles or problems to fix or that kind of thing? How do we view one another? How does the gospel have a meaningful effect on how we treat or see our fellow? How does this work in a slave-owner-to-slave relationship? Man, it's so intense. We have no indication, I can't be strong enough on this, we have no indication that Paul believed in the abolition of slavery. There is nothing in his writing whatsoever that speaks to manumission or emancipation. He just, that's just not where he was. We desperately, I want him to be on my side <laughs> when it comes to the slave thing. But he's just not. When Paul was not, anybody who's read a little bit of Paul, you know that this guy is not afraid to strike out in a new direction, to speak very boldly, even though he knows it's not going to be received well. He has no problem saying really intense things need to change. This is not something he addresses. He's a first century guy. And as such, I think Paul was blinded to the immorality of slavery. He just didn't see it. It hadn't come into the consciousness yet for people. And the whole first two, three hundred years of church history is the same way. You've got to get all the way up to about Chrysostom before you start to see the early church fathers starting to think, okay, slavery might not be a good thing. It's just how we rolled for hundreds of years. It's just the way the world works. So we kind of ask, well... If Paul's not asking to change the whole culture or to abolish the institution of slavery, then what is he asking to change? What's the thing he's focusing on? And I would say the thing that he's calling them to change is is how it is that they make their judgments on things. He's going to be asking them to start seeking God's approval, or maybe we might say gospel approval, as opposed to world approval. Oftentimes, we do things that we do because that's just what's done. Paul wants to say, I don't care about how things work in the culture at large. I care about how things work in the kingdom of God. And I want you guys to be thinking that way as well. I think essentially he's saying, we're not going to ask our culture what is expected or normal or even reasonable when it comes to slaves. I'll get into a bit of that in a second here. We're going to turn our face to God, and we're going to ask, what does God think? Not just whether our nation or our laws approve. There's nothing that Philemon has done that we can tell that's illegal. Onesimus, by running away, has committed a crime, a significant crime. Do we care about the laws of the land and the way of the world more than the way of God and his kingdom? I think it's unsettling for us to think of Paul this way, and yet I think it's truthful, and therefore it's helpful. It helps us to read his texts better. It helps us to understand where he's coming from better. So let's think deeply about what it means for us and how we understand Paul 
as we proceed. Now I want to move to the second segment here, which is just the culture at large. First century Rome is a slave culture through and through. You're looking at 35 plus percent of the population is in slavery. That's a lot of slaves. A huge section of the society was enslaved. More than 250,000 slaves being sold and traded annually in this day. And they're sold and traded in the ways that maybe you remember from some of our history classes even related to America. You set them up on a stand in the public square completely naked and shackles and inspect them as though they're a piece of machinery. Does this have, you know, good gears and a good hydraulic system and nice tires that aren't worn out? You know, this is my tool for my farm. So it's dehumanizing at that level. But very common slave trade. It was just everywhere. In this day, who you were and what you did was related to where you fit in the social hierarchy. So slavery is on the low end, and it's not necessarily a racial thing. We do see some language from, I think, Cicero and a couple, yeah, Cicero who says Syrians and Jews are more suited for slavery. There's a couple of people who have opinions on certain races that should be enslaved versus others. But by and large, it's not a racial thing. It's just a poor versus wealthy who you're born into kind of thing. What social status do you have? Aristotle, who came long before Paul, helps us see the mindset of slave owning. He, and we kind of respect Aristotle and Plato, right? These great philosophers, really brilliant guys. They give you a little bit of a cue as to what slavery meant to them or what slaves were. Aristotle calls slaves tools that are lifeless and, or sorry, some tools are lifeless and some tools are living. Slaves belong to the second category, tools that are alive. The usefulness of slaves diverges little from that of animals, he says. For such people, slavery is an institution that's both efficient and just. So he's like, look, if you're born this way, being enslaved is a gift to you. It's a good thing. It's what you were built to do. You know, I don't know that any slave is like, oh, good. Thank you for this wonderful job. I feel wonderful about that. But this is just the way that they thought. The soul of a slave has no soundness in it, says Plato. A sensible man should never trust that class at all. Notice it's a class, slave class. So here's our takeaway, I think. Slaves in this culture were people who were seen as morally inferior and just plain inferior overall. They're literally a lesser kind of human being. You could not inherit anything. You could not marry. You're more or less, legally speaking, you're, you're people who don't really exist. <laughs> you're a person, but you're not really a person. Again, you're a tool or a material or an object. Some masters, I read one this week named Calumella, he would reward his slaves, and he wrote this whole book on how to care for them. He would say, if you have female slaves, give them rewards for the amount of children they produce for you. If they produce three children, take the labor away from them. If they produce four, give them freedom. Now, it's kind of a four-for-one deal, you know? And children for slaves in a slave household, which was basically all of them, were kind of like puppies or kittens in a litter. When they had the children, there was nobody at all thinking it would be, we need to, we need to make sure the kid stays with mom and dad, you see? They were, now I have another tool to either use or to sell. I could go on and on and on. I think you'd know I could. But I want you to feel what Onesimus grew up in. This was Onesimus. We don't know how Philemon got him. Philemon might have got him by buying him. That's somewhat likely. I would probably guess Onesimus was just born. Uh, he was one of the slave women in Philemon's household who gave birth to Onesimus. All right? We don't know. It's just speculation. But Onesimus was a slave in that culture. Philemon was a slave owner in that culture. Philemon has all the power. Onesimus has zero power. And Onesimus decides to launch 
what you might call a private revolution. He runs away. They say that when a people is made to be powerless, eventually there is a reaction which first turns to rebellion and then to revolution. I think we've seen that through human history, haven't we? Well, this is a little rebellion that Onesimus is going to wage. Legally, running away was a straight-up crime. Onesimus did not own himself. So, by running away, he's stealing a slave from Philemon, and he's stealing labor hours at the bare minimum. It is very possible that he will be subjected to beatings, Runaways would have their appendages cut off, sometimes both hands. I don't know why you would cut off both of the hands of your slave. I can't imagine they'd do much good work for you after that. But still, it was maybe a fear thing. It was brutal when you got caught as a slave. Often you'd have an iron collar around your neck for the rest of your life to let people know this person tried to run away once before. You had slave hunters lurking everywhere. You had public forums with little... We have pieces of papyrus from the first century with little advertisements from slave owners. Hey, he's, he's somewhere around 20 years old, has a thin chin with a thin beard. You know, the descriptions, it's kind of eerie to read them. I wonder if Philemon didn't have a little post-it on a piece of papyrus down in the town square. Had contact information from the masters. If you find my slave, here's how to get him back to me. It is likely that Onesimus knows that Philemon is probably looking for him. It's just what you did. That's the way of the world. It is likely that this is why Onesimus needs an advocate like Paul. And I think that might be what drives him all the way to Paul. Okay? So, let's open, open up to Philemon. Again, it's not a very long book. Uh, it's at the end of your Bibles, kind of go First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. You look at, maybe find the book of Hebrews, and it's just one before it. It'll only be one page in your Bible, most likely. Somebody shows up to Philemon's household carrying this letter. You've got to imagine yourself there. We don't know who it is. Might be Epaphras, might be Onesimus. They show up with this letter to Philemon. If it's Onesimus, he's coming as one who's totally powerless. And even if he's not there, he's waiting for the answer. What happens to Onesimus' life is 100% dependent on the nature of Philemon's character. What kind of man Philemon is going to be. Okay? Imagine all the slaves sitting around in the household. What happens to Onesimus will have real impact on you if you're one of the slaves who's part of this house church. So you can imagine they're waiting and listening. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? All right? And then Paul puts Philemon on the block, on the stand. He makes an appeal to him. My professor Scott, he says this. This is good. This is one of the most pastoral moments that you will ever see in Paul's life. Paul knows certain things about his power that he doesn't want to use, but he's still using. <laughs> it's great. He knows he comes with the weight of apostleship, but he doesn't use it, but he does. He's not going to be passive-aggressive. He's not being manipulative, but he's being rhetorically potent. And it is a peculiar way to address this issue. It is. Philemon's kind of a weird book just as much as it is powerful. So here we go, Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. He's right off the bat, Paul's setting the tone. I am a prisoner, he says. There's no apostolic saber rattling here. He'll do that in some other books like Galatians. But here, he identifies with Onesimus. I too am a prisoner, but of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, Oh, Philemon's like, oh, good. <laughs> all right, I'm stoked so far. I'm identified as a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. That's great. Also, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, a fellow soldier, they're, they're, they're stoked. They're in the room. I got to mention in a Pauline letter. This is fantastic. So, so far, so good. And to the whole church that meets in your home. 
Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God, he says. I love it how he does that. I always thank my God as I remember you and my prayers because I hear about your love. Don't forget Philemon. I hear about your love for all his holy people. Don't forget your slaves. And your faith in the Lord Jesus, I pray that your partnership, koinonos, that's an important word in Paul's writing, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Wow. I want our partnership to be something that is effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share. What does that mean? Deepening your understanding. Well, we're going to find out here. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Okay. He's coming strong with accolades for, I am stoked about your love. I am stoked about your faithfulness. I love the way that you're going to help to refresh. He's really bolstering up the good things in Philemon. But he uses that word fellowship or partnership, koinonia. And I'd ask you, I want to take a little break here for a second. When you think of fellowship, what happens in your head right away? What's kind of the first thing that you think of? I, in my upbringing, have been sort of raised to understand fellowship as brief, morally sanitized socializing moments, you know? You, you get together for a fellowship hour, or we meet in the fellowship hall, and we think of fellowship as a time where we, we, we talk about the weather without using any cuss words, you know? It's just, that's how we, we felt. It's like a nice time, but it's short. I want you to think differently about fellowship the way the New Testament talks about it. It is a deep enmeshing of life. It's a deep connection with other people. Those ideas like fellowship hour or fellowship hall, if we're not careful, can actually mislead us pretty significantly. To actually think that one of the greatest uh, focal points of Paul's teaching to us has to do with fellowship if we think about it as just sort of casual interactions. It's so much more than that. Paul here is going to say, I, he said, I pray that your partnership, your fellowship with me, this life that we have in common, is going to be something that deepens your understanding of the goodness of Jesus. You ever feel really confused? Why does the Bible say this? I feel so lost. I feel da 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 I don't understand anything. I would ask you, it's not always the case, but sometimes you live in that, in that spot because you're actually not in fellowship with the church. You're not in a life-on-life -life sharing and reciprocating and giving and receiving kind of way of living. You're more isolated. It's very difficult to understand God in isolation. It's in, in fact, I would say it doesn't work. When you think of fellowship, think of things like this. Mutual participation in the ministry. Somebody who understands themselves as a fellow in fellowship at Central Bible Church says, this is just as much my ministry as it is Pastor Ben's ministry or Pastor Andrew's ministry, okay? Or, or, or anybody's. We together participate. Fellowship means actively identifying with one another under grace, so we, we genuinely look at each other and we say not, I'm better than you and you're worse, or you're better and I'm worse. We say we're one. I don't say I'm the one who's right and you're wrong in, in sort of overall terms. We say we're together in the same boat trying to pursue Jesus. We are, we belong to each other. That's a fellowship idea. Think of relational interchange and exchange. Fellowship in Jesus eliminates the need to get what I need out of a community. Real fellowship looks at your relationships and, and it asks you, do I consume relationship or do I give relationship? If all you're doing is consuming relationship, 
you're not in fellowship. You see? Fellowship is a two-way street. It's beautiful. So Paul has said, I pray, Philemon, that through my fellowship, my partnership with you, and in our work, you're going to understand the gospel in a much deeper way, and it's going to apply to this thing that's gone down with Onesimus. Okay? So here's where Paul is just going to flank him. Verse 8. Therefore, okay, I've just said a bunch of awesome stuff. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and I could order you to do what you ought to do, you know, I'm not going to do that, wink, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. I want to appeal to you. I want to have you think about this for yourself. Now, you know, anybody, anybody in here who's a parent, you know, you imagine saying you come up to your kid and you're like, now, Wesley, I know that I'm your dad, but I don't want to appeal to you on the basis of my father. You know, he's like, it's a fatherly command one way or the other. He's already getting it. So he says, I, that's not the way I want to roll, but he kind of is doing that. Here he says in verse uh, 9, it is as none other than Paul, an old man. And also now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, don't you feel sorry for me? I'm just an old guy here. I'm in prison. Would you just please kind of think about this with me? And I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Oh, that's a big word. Who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he has become useful to both you and to me. The slave who ran away is now Paul's son. Something has changed. He's now useful to you and to me, Philemon, Paul says. Something has happened with Onesimus. Verse 12, so I am sending him back to you, okay? Paul is out there in prison. Onesimus gets to him. Something happens. Something major happens. Paul, Paul takes him under his wing, if you will, and now Paul's instruction to the runaway slave is, you need to go back to your master. That's probably not what Onesimus was hoping for. You, know? you need to go back to your master. I'm sending him to you who is my very heart. That's the same language that he used for Philemon back at the beginning. I'm sending him to you who is my very heart. He's coming to you. Verse 13, I would have loved to keep him here so that he could take your place and help in me while I am in chains for the gospel. Somehow Onesimus has actually become a ministry partner with Paul. He wants him to be a part of what he's doing. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, Philemon. You feel the pressure? It's up to you. Notice Paul's respect for Philemon. We need to treat each other this way. We are thinking and free beings and ought to treat each other that way. Because somebody's doing something different than you, or even if it's immoral, we can approach them with great loving respect and say, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand Jesus? I want to appeal to you. You see Paul's pastoral heart here? Man, he's not up there clubbing people. There's no thumping here. He's genuinely saying, look, let's perceive this better. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you, verse 15, perhaps he was separated for a little while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Whoa, a brother, a son, an eternal friend. Paul is trying to locate the reality of their relationship into the framework of God's eternal kingdom. And he's saying, in this world, in Jesus' new world, you guys are brothers. You guys are forever friends, okay? And now we start to treat each other that way. We start to treat each other that way. 
It's, there's something different when I lived in a very small town in Wisconsin to Portland. We knew everybody. You knew everybody and everybody's kids and who did what and who was going where and all that stuff. There was almost a sort of community respect you had even for people you didn't like. In the big city, I found that because we're all moving past each other so quickly, it's almost like it's easier to be cruel toward each other. Even easier would be on the internet. But I think here we have this sort of sense of, I may or may not be with you for any period of time, so I can kind of treat you however I feel like treating you in the moment. But in the gospel, in the kingdom, we say, I'm going to be with you for 52 trillion years. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to learn to get along. I might have to start thinking about you as, as somebody I want to be around instead of somebody I just want to avoid. That's amazing. All right. I'm getting out of I get excited about this stuff. If you consider me a partner, Koinonos, again, there it is, a fellow, welcome him, Onesimus, your runaway slave, in the same way that you would welcome me. Ooh. If he's done anything to you or he owes you anything, send me the tab. We don't even know how Paul could have paid that tab. He didn't have hardly any money. That's a, that's a common source of debate. Where did Paul get the money to back that up? But it's funny what he says. He says, he says, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, you know, wink, not to mention you owe me your very self. You know, if you want the cash, no problem. Just remember you owe me your soul. <laughs> Isn't that good? I love Paul. Oh, it's amazing. He wants him to welcome him back into the life of Christ. This means, Paul is saying to Philemon, I want you to show Onesimus forgiveness when you have the legal right to beat him. I want you to show Onesimus brotherhood when you have the legal right and the very common, normal way of thinking, which is to set him below you where he belongs in the tool shed, because he's a tool. No, he says, I want you to treat him like a brother. Restoration, restitution, starting over again. This is what Paul is calling Philemon to. And he's willing to put his own resources behind it to make it happen. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Isn't it beautiful? On the beginning, he said, you're this kind of guy, Philemon. You've already refreshed me. Now he says, do it again. Let's stay the course. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience, he said, I, I know you're going to do the right thing, Philemon. Confident, before the term was love, I'm confident of your love. Here he moves it to a different verb, obedience. I'm confident that you're going to obey, and look at what he says next. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I ask. That's a, Paul is so, he has so much hope. And his friend Philemon, his co-laborer, he sees him doing something or knows he could do something terrible, but he doesn't go vitriolic or condemning on him. He invites him with love, encouragement, building up the good qualities he sees in Philemon. He says, you're going to not just obey, you're going to do even more. I would say, true believers, don't ask, where's the line? At what point does it become sin? That's not a believer's question. A real believer in Jesus doesn't say, how much is required? Those are still the questions of the self-seeker. How much can I get away with? How much will it really cost me? The real believer who says, I am going to live for eternity with a God who gives everything to me simply by speaking in. I'm not self-seeking anymore. I'm just living for him. That's the true believer. He wants Philemon to be there. I know you're going to obey this and even more. You call him a brother, that's step one. You can almost see the trajectory of the New Testament, which I believe does lead to total emancipation, total manumission, a total abolishment of slavery. We know that. It's crucial. Paul didn't see that then, but it's like he kind of did. If we're going to live in freedom and love and peace here in our church, but also in our private lives, we need to feel and embrace this heartbeat in Paul's letter to Philemon. I want you to feel it. See how he's pastoring Philemon and pastor one another that way. 
through invitation, through love, through challenge, and through grace. Let's finish it. Verse 22. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. I've written all of this to you, Philemon, so that you would have the gift from Jesus himself, the charis, the grace. I want you to have that gift. And we know from Paul's other writing, he wants him to have that gift in a way that has a meaningful effect on his life, to not receive the gift in vain. Well, that's a good idea, but I still got to keep him. Who's going who's gonna to do the work? You see? To receive the gift in a way that changes him. Did Philemon actually set Onesimus free? Did Philemon set all of his slaves free? Would that have even been a good thing? All of that stuff we don't know except for this. Philemon's in your New Testament. I doubt Philemon would be in your New Testament if Philemon said, no thanks. Right? I think Philemon set him free, at least to the point of calling him a brother and receiving him back in the way that Paul had instructed. I suspect that if he had not done that, we wouldn't have it in our Bible, okay? Paul did not ask Philemon for, uh, once again, he didn't ask him to set him free. He asks him to be restored to his relationship. He asks Philemon to treat him well. This is about the church. This is about the household of Philemon. This is about a brand new reality starting to emerge. It invites us to witness a picture of just how deeply the gospel sinks into the things that we believe and the ways we behave. This was radical for Philemon to receive this letter. I bet he was sweating. I bet his heart was racing. What is he asking me to do? The the economic implications were huge. This was a major deal. But here they are, an early Christian community, trying to figure out what it looks like to really live in a way where there is no longer Jew or Greek or American or Iranian, where there is no longer slave or free. There's no longer rich or poor in the sense of matters a lot and doesn't matter at all. They're trying to figure that out. You and I have great challenges today. Our culture presents challenges to us that was not on the docket for Paul. We have to look at the way he handles cultural change and cultural norms and say, how do we take his heartbeat and get it pumping in our system? You know, here with the challenges that we face. And the first step toward that happening was when a Christian slave, Onesimus, has run away and Paul's intensely radical letter calls a Christian slave owner to a kind of response that was just unheard of. I love that Jesus loves me. It's so freeing and wonderful to know that the God who built me actually loves me. I think many of you would feel in the same way. You'd share that thought. The kind of person that God is wanting me to become, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, not conformed to the ways of the world, that new man is a little bit freaky to me. It's just so different than the way I've learned to work and operate and think. And yet Jesus is good. And I want to encourage you to trust him. This is where trust hits the concrete streets of your life. Because he is waking you up through his word. And you know it. You don't need me to point every, uh, every conviction out. He convicts us through the Holy Spirit. He invites us into a totally new way of life. And at first glance, it feels really fun. When you really get down into Christian living, it's hard. But it's so beautiful and rich. I bet you that when Onesimus and Philemon reconciled and became one again, you, you know, their relationship was rock solid. 
They had walked through the difficulty of a broken world and come into the light of a saving gospel and were literally experiencing divine relationship between two people right now. I bet they'll be buddies in heaven. Paul's vision was much greater than changing human laws or changing any particular culture. His vision was that the people of God in the churches that they worship together in would begin to live in this gospel way. I think he trusted that if we can live this way and we continue to carry out the mission of Jesus, cultures and nations will change. But the focus is on how we're living together as God's people. The main focus was within the church, the body of Christ. We need to hear this. It's a beautiful letter, isn't it? I have written to you on your bulletin a quote from a fellow I've been studying a lot from lately, John Barclay. We're about to come to communion after this. I want to pray with you, and before I do, I want to read this final closing quote. It is when we go together to this communion table and we receive the gift of God in Christ that I remember again most fully who I am as a child of God. Like everyone else there, by grace alone, all of my cultural prejudices, all human reckoning of success simply falls away. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer, you see. There, at the communion table, I am stripped down of any human notion of worth, and I find myself one with everyone else there, each of us being reestablished together in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, reestablish us together in you. We're not asking you for a how-to on how to get along better. God, as a pastor today, in love with this community that you have placed me in, I ask you to help us see the great vision of life together in your gospel and in your life. Help us to see how we are being formed together as a spiritual household. You're whittling us down and shaping us like stones to fit tightly together so that we would be strong in this world for you. Help us, would you please, to be reestablished in you, to be patient and loving, to be gracious and strong with each other, to enter into a true fellowship that can't be broken by sin or anything else, the kind of fellowship that you share with us. We love you. We trust you with our lives. Amen.